This season of The Francis Effect is sponsored in part by Franciscan Media, seeking to spread the gospel in the spirit of St. Francis. Franciscan Media publishes books by authors like Richard Rohr, Heather King, and Ronald Rollheiser. Get 25% off your first order in the store when you use the code FRANCISFX, that's Francis, the letter F and the letter X, at franciscanmedia.org. That's franciscanmedia.org. This season of The Francis Effect is brought to you by Liturgical Press in Collegeville, Minnesota. Liturgical Press is a trusted publisher of resources on liturgy, scripture, theology, and spirituality, evolving to serve the changing needs of the Christian church. They produce resources for pastoral leaders, teachers, engaged learners, and all readers looking for quality books on faith and culture. Lit Press books are available at your favorite book retailer and online at litpress.org. That's litpress.org. Hello and welcome to the Francis Effect Podcast. My name is David Dalt. I host a radio show called Things Not Seen about culture and faith, and I'm an assistant professor of Christian spirituality at the Institute of Pastoral Studies at Loyola University, Chicago. I'm here with my friends Heidi Schlumpf and Father Dan Haran. Heidi is senior correspondent at National Catholic Reporter, a publication that connects Catholics to church, faith, and the common good with independent news, analysis, and spiritual reflection. Father Dan is Professor of Philosophy, Religious Studies, and Theology, and Director of the Center for the Study of Spirituality at St. Mary's College in Notre Dame, Indiana. He's also Affiliated Professor of Spirituality at the Oblate School of Theology in San Antonio, Texas. Every couple of weeks, we get together to discuss news and events through a lens of our shared Catholic faith. Father Dan and Heidi, welcome to you both. Heidi, how have you been doing? I'm doing great. It's a rainy day here in Chicago, and I just got done running down to my basement to make sure I'm not flooding. So, David, I hope you guys don't have those problems. We just redid our basement last year, and so I'm very cautious to make sure we don't have sewage backing up into our newly nice uh, family room downstairs. Things are going well here in Chicago. My husband and I just celebrated 19 years of marriage yesterday. It was our anniversary. And as we approach the year 20, it's one of those like human things, right? To say, oh my God, I can't believe it's been that long. And then I look at the wedding photo and I'm like, who are those kids? (laughs) (laughs) So we're excited. We're going to celebrate in a week or so. So by going to see a live taping of Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me, I'm a big NPR geek. So, and I've never done that. So we're going to do that together. So... So life is good here as senior correspondent. I'm still enjoying a better work-life balance, and uh, it's starting to show in my uh, relationships and my own mental health, so I'm happy about that. How about you, Dan? I know uh, relaxing is not a part of your <laughs> life schedule these days. I try, well, I try to work that in there. It's your point about work-life balance, relaxing, prayer, some downtime. That's that's all important, very important. Things are good. Uh, we're, believe it or not, in, in the sixth week of the semester here at St. Mary's and your alma mater, Notre Dame and Holy Cross College here in the tri-campus. And it's going really well. It's exciting. We've got a lot of things happening. I want to give a shout out, though, to about two weeks ago, actually the day after the last episode dropped, 
I gave a lecture in Scottsdale, Arizona at the Franciscan Renewal Center. And we had a number of people there who are listeners to the podcast, a couple of Patreon supporters who appreciated shout outs from David. They appreciate um, listening to the podcast. As always, we're so grateful to you all. Thank you for coming to that lecture. Thank you for listening to us. And then next week, I'm, I, this is what I'm getting ready for. This is already a kind of crazy time of year, the first several weeks of a semester. And then Pope Francis decided to basically drop everything that's possibly happening this fall on one day, which is the solemnity of his namesake, St. Francis of Assisi. And as a Franciscan, that's already a kind of busy day. But for listeners who may not know, October 4th, we're expecting a new apostolic exhortation, which is billed as a follow-up to Laudato Si. So there's events happening around that. I'm going to be a part of a virtual panel, a global panel that's going to be co-sponsored by some organizations and housed in the Vatican. So that's going to be live at 8 o'clock Rome time, 2 o'clock Eastern time. Very excited about that. More information to come. And then there's the work of theologians and commentators. I happen to sometimes wear both hats and also work in the area of eco-spirituality and theology. And so I'm very much looking forward to this document. But it means that it's going to be a busy week. In addition to the document coming out, it's also the launch of the Synod on Synodality long awaited. And so I know, Heidi, you've talked to uh, Dr. Brian Flanagan, um, who's our guest today, uh, just about synodality. And so uh, listeners will, will get a treat there. But there's just so much happening. I, I like to say it's a, it's busy, but it's good busy. It's maybe the parallel to um, the late Congressman John Lewis's good trouble. It's not bad trouble, but good trouble. So yeah, I think it's I think it's good. Speaking of busy, David, you're busy. I know that. What's going on with you? Well, when I get done with recording this today, I will spend the whole day teaching. And then tomorrow morning at 4.45, I get up and head over to Midway Airport to catch an early flight to Princeton, New Jersey. I've been invited to Princeton to give some talks to postgraduate fellows in, I think the center is called the Center for Religion, Culture, and Society about public scholarship, since I straddle both worlds of the academy and doing work like this on radio and podcasting, I was invited to talk about how emerging scholars can think about incorporating these kinds of public-facing efforts into their work in a sustainable way. Since I am in the process not only of working on my own scholarship and publishing books and things like that, but also producing my own media here with things like Francis Effect and Things Not Seen, but also I work on shows for the Paulist Fathers and for Commonweal Magazine and for National Catholic Reporter. Um, people wonder, how do you make all of that work, David? And so that's part of what I get to talk about when I go to events like this, is I get to talk about balancing that kind of productivity with a real intense focus on self-care. And Heidi, you were talking earlier about getting that kind of work-life balance. I am blessed that even though I get a lot done, I, I've reached a point where it doesn't tax me the way that it used to. And uh, I'm able to make this work and still have, for example, last night sat down for an hour and a half and helped our older kid with homework and things like that. So there is a work-life balance here, and I'm happy to get a chance to talk about it. And I'm really excited to go to Princeton because Princeton is where Albert Einstein spent the last part of his academic life at the Institute for Advanced Study. So I'm going to get a chance while I'm there to go and visit the Institute for Advanced Study. And I wrote to the head of the Institute there and said, I'm coming and I'd 
they're going to allow me to come and, and hang out for a little bit there as well. So the the kind of uh, nuclear science and special theory of relativity geek in me is just ecstatic that I get to go there and see the place where apparently Albert Einstein carved his name into a table in a bar, those kinds of things. So, yeah. Hey, speaking of travel, I forgot to mention that I'm actually headed your way, Dan, to South Bend later this week. In fact, when the, by the time this episode drops, I'll be at the University of Notre Dame. And I know you're not going to be there. <laughs> like, we're all traveling no. at the same time. There's a conference sponsored by the law school on religious freedom and the black church. So I found that intriguing. I'm going to go attend and do some coverage for NCR. So, hey, and speaking of all the exciting news coming next week between the Synod launch, beginning of the Synod meeting, and the new follow-up. Oh, what are we calling it? Laudato sequel. Did you see they released oh, the name of the document yesterday? Laudate Deum, right? Yeah, yeah. So that's, I believe that translates to praise God, right? Mm-hmm. I'm not a Latin scholar here, but I'm excited about that too. And of course, everybody at NCR's Earthbeat is excited for that too. But you're right, it's going to be a busy week next week. And then, speaking of travel, I know Heidi and I are both heading to Italy. You to do a lot of synod coverage, me to co-lead a trip to Assisi in Rome, just adding to the October of, of church kind of global busyness. So it's exciting, though. Pretty exciting. But like you said, all good stuff. Yes. Well, today on the program, we've got three topics for you. In our first segment, we're going to be talking about the looming government shutdown that we hope that we will avoid, but it's looking more and more as the week progresses like it will be unavoidable. We're going to be talking about the recent blessings of same-sex unions in Germany and what that might mean for this ongoing question in, in the church. And then in our third segment, Heidi interviews Brian Flanagan of New Ways Ministry. So all that is coming up here on The Francis Effect. Please stay with us. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble, with exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Welcome back to The Francis Effect. I'm Dan Haran. I'm here with Heidi Schlumpf and David Dalt. Every couple of weeks, we get together to discuss a variety of topics from a perspective informed by our shared Catholic faith. Well, it's that time of year again. For the past 30 years, the federal government has operated without passing a budget. As a result, once again, we are facing a showdown, and this showdown threatens the livelihoods and even the lives of millions of Americans. Just by way of background, three months ago, California Congressman and Speaker of the House Kevin McCarthy negotiated a deal with President Joe Biden that would set spending levels for the coming year. That agreement was part of a bipartisan debt limit package that overwhelmingly passed the House of Representatives in a 343 to 117 vote. Almost immediately, a group of far-right Republicans in the House, led by Florida Congressman Matt Gates, rejected the plan. Gates has threatened to begin the formal process of removing Kevin McCarthy from the position of speaker if he does not immediately begin enacting far-right demands. 
These demands are not limited to fiscal matters, but also involve issuing subpoenas toward an investigation that is aimed to result in the impeachment of President Biden. The effects of a shutdown will be immediate and for many devastating. Federal workers, including many of the roughly 2 million military personnel and more than 2 million civilian workers across the nation, will stop receiving paychecks. Vulnerable populations, especially children, will experience an interruption of services and support that helps them have secure food, housing, and health care. Experts also warn of dire consequences to our financial markets and a blow to confidence from our foreign allies. As the U.S. Chamber of Commerce warned, and I quote, a well-functioning economy requires a functioning government, end quote. David, there are very real threats and dangers on the table here in the looming government shutdown. What should we look at first? Well, the thing that I want to focus on first is a talking point that as I have been listening to various Republican congressmen, both in the extreme right and what is considered the more kind of moderate or problem-solving wing of the Republicans, there's a talking point that keeps getting trotted out. We are taking in $5 trillion a year, and we're spending $7 trillion a year. And so the kind of the assumption that is behind this talking point is, well, all that we've got is $5 trillion, but we keep spending $2 trillion more than we've got coming in, and no business and no household can function that way. We simply have to find a way to trim that extra $2 trillion. Now, I say that this is a talking point because I've heard at least four different congressmen from across the political spectrum of the Republican Party use exactly this phrasing. What never gets talked about is we have a mechanism to begin bringing in more revenue. If $5 trillion is a shortfall against a $7 trillion spending, we can begin to raise taxes. We can begin to have ways of bringing in revenue with businesses and with billionaires that would allow for us to begin to address that shortfall. But it's always acted as if that is never a conceivable possibility, that all we can do is simply cut. And the things that have to get cut, as you mentioned in the topper, are always against the most vulnerable and particularly children. So the elderly will still get their social security checks because they've got a very powerful lobby in the AARP. But the young, especially the minority young, will starve and will have bad healthcare outcomes and bad housing outcomes as a result of this shutdown. And I just think that, as a Catholic and as a citizen, is unconscionable. Well, I think one of the things I, I thought about with the last shutdown, and every time we come to the brink of another, is, is a few things. One is this claim that you made reference to in the beginning there, David, about what I would call sort of family or kitchen table budgetary concerns, right? There's a way in which particularly Republicans, they build themselves as fiscally responsible folks. They're the party that, you know, they want lower taxes because they want less spending. They want responsible spending, et cetera, et cetera. And, and the kind of metaphor that's often invoked is this is like what it means to have a responsible family budget, right? You're not going to spend not trillions of dollars, but let's say $2 trillion over the five that you have in the bank. And in theory, that kind of tracks. There's an internal logic to that because people understand what the consequences are like. If you don't plan accordingly, you rack up debt or you go without or you struggle in some other form. But the problem is the government is not a family. And this is true with uh, corporations and non-for-profit organizations like universities that oftentimes have to run certain kinds of deficit or carry uh, debt that they service in order 
to not just make ends meet in the same way that somebody might take out a second mortgage for a family budget, but because this is part of the fiscal planning, right? There's just a very different thing going on here. It's it's not even apples and oranges. It's like apples and rocking horses, right? So different. The other thing that I'm thinking of, and it's a sort of the shadow side or the flip side of the coin to this, I think, unhelpful home budgetary metaphor. And that is a disconnection from people on the ground. What you're saying, David, about the real impacts here, that does not seem to bother the people who are pushing unnecessarily this fiscal crisis to bring to the level of brinkmanship like we see. So I think the fact that there are folks who are elected by constituents who are trying to just live their lives and and earn a living and support their families and pay their taxes so that we can all benefit from having a solid and and well-funded local and federal government, these folks are playing games and they're playing positional games, wanting to, as one commentator said I heard this past week, set up a a far-right sort of resume so that they can run for another office maybe down the road. So I think it's, it's horrifying, it's terrible, but it's not surprising anymore, is it? I don't know, Heidi, what you think about this. Well, it's just become very odd how government shutdowns, impeachment, it's just like the regular way of doing government now. And it's very problematic that we're getting used to this. What I noticed was that you have these Republicans who are not afraid to have a shutdown. Now, I I think I read somewhere that if the shutdown is short, it won't immediately affect things like uh, WIC, women, infant and children, food supplements. But it it will eventually affect people who, who get the kind of assistance that you were talking about, David, that it mostly affects children. And I find this especially ironic, given that these are some of the same politicians who said in the aftermath of the Dobbs decision, now we're going to turn our attention to helping women who might be facing an unplanned pregnancy and be would have otherwise considered abortion because of financial issues. So now it's all about helping women and their children, yet this doesn't help women and their children. Now, to be fair, I I will just bring in here that I saw that the president of the U.S. Catholic Bishops Conference, um, Archbishop Broglio, did release a statement about this saying, we're willing to work with both sides to try to get a bipartisan solution to this. And he did mention a number of different priorities. I know immigration is one that's becoming part of the whole political football in this discussion, too. So one thing that I'm aware of is when you listen to people like Matt Gates talk about this, they seem to be standing on a kind of principle that Kevin McCarthy gave his word that he was going to draw certain hard lines in the sand and was going to deliver certain things that this far-right wing of the party wanted and that they bartered for in exchange for support of McCarthy's speakership. McCarthy, to his credit, I think, is trying to actually move forward towards functional legislation. He sat down and he did negotiate with the Biden administration to try and move forward a functioning government, even if it is not a government on a balanced budget or even a government with a budget, it still will allow for the continuance of government services towards citizens who are paying for those services. And that seems to be on principle going too far for people like Matt Gates. And so what I want to keep putting into our listeners' minds here is you will hear very high-minded language from these people who literally are wanting to hold you and other vulnerable persons hostage. They're wanting to hold us hostage for the best possible reasons, they will tell us, and f- and in order to discipline government and to discipline spending. But at the end of the day, as we have talked about a lot here on the show, 
the Catholic view of government is that it exists to protect and to support the common good. And at this particular moment, the common good is not being served by the principle that is being put in place here. And all the high-minded rhetoric will not ever make up for the fact that real lives will suffer and be harmed as a result of these policies. It was like you're reading my mind, David. I was thinking of the common good. I had a note right here to bring that up, and I'm glad you did. The other thing, too, is thinking about the core of Christianity. And I was just recently that, yeah, I was thinking about Isaiah, the passage in Isaiah that appears in Luke chapter four, where Jesus um, comes back from the desert in that in the Luke and Gospel account. Uh, and he goes to the synagogue where it's his turn to read from the scroll. He reads from this passage from the book of Isaiah, where he essentially announces his mission statement, right? What is his ministry goal? And he talks about giving sight to the blind, good news for the poor, relief for, for captives and those who are oppressed, a day of Sabbath, a day of basically freedom, this idea that those who are oppressed and subjugated, who are victims of unjust so- social and other structures, that that God does not desire this for them. And so I think about the fact that one way to consider what's going on there in that scene is that Jesus is announcing plainly for his hearers what he's intending to do, what God's will is. But we who dare to call ourselves Christians, and both of the people that that we're talking about here, whether it's Kevin McCarthy as Speaker of the House, whether we're talking about uh, Matt Gates who purports to be Christian, folks who hold these sort of religious identities, but at times I find it very unrecognizable. The notion of the common good is really important. It's at the center of Christian life. Whether you're a Catholic or not, you can look back to the mission of Jesus and realize that we who dare us to call ourselves Christians after the example of Christ also inherit that mission statement. And so there's no good news in this showdown for the poor. There is no relief for prisoners and those who are oppressed. There is no freedom for captives or sight for the blind and the rest. And I think that's worth thinking about. We talk about high-minded sort of reflections. Where's that in this conversation? Yeah. And like you said, it's all under the guise of this fiscal responsibility. And I'm all for fiscal responsibility. I'm a, a true penny pincher when it comes to the finances in our family. But the lack of investment in the common good, as you mentioned, David, is also sinful. I'm thinking of the news earlier this year about that devastating flood in Libya where the bridge, which there had been warnings in advance that the that investment was needed to shore up the bridge, and they were ignored in part because they don't have a very functioning government there as well. And then it has this immense loss of life and such devastation. You have to be willing to invest in necessary things and not just infrastructure like bridges and roads, but people and children and the common good. So I don't know, it's since Reagan, this has been twisted, this whole idea of government being this terrible thing that's there to take your money and spend it foolishly. And I wish the church would push back more because as you've noted, Dan, it's part of our tradition and our Christian tradition not to think that way. Well, and there's also this forgetfulness. I I would call it a kind of a, a spirit of ingratitude when these sorts of behaviors take over democratically elected representatives, like they're not there on their own accord, right? This is not meant to be the Matt Gates social club where he is a member that can express his own views, et cetera, independently. I mean, he's there in a representative government to represent the people that elected him or that live in his district. And I think this, what I mean by ingratitude is that the sort of, I don't know how to call it exactly, the illogical approach at times to how governments function and how the financial structure of of a federal government the size of ours functions doesn't take into account the fact that 
everything that has made, for instance, somebody like Representative Gates successful, education, the streets that are paved and lighted in his town, the police officers and fire departments that protect and respond, everything all, all across the board there. Maybe as a child when he was growing up, if he knows how how to swim in Florida, maybe it's because he took advantage of public swim lessons at a local pool or at beach, the, the lifeguards at the beaches in Florida, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. These are all things that require emphasis of the common good. And as David likes to say, the common wheel that, that what we share in common financially and collectively, and that we don't do this independently. I, I think back to the Obama administration, and he got a lot of flack for a, a, a comment that was taken out of context when he was talking at, at one business, and he said something like, you didn't do this on your own, which was a matter of fact. So if you're talking about a transportation company, and I'm the son of somebody who's a transportation executive for, for a long time, those trucks that are delivering packages and, and goods and food from one place to another can't do that without the federally and state and local funded roads on which they drive. So I, I think that ingratitude for what we benefit from, um, all of us in a society such as ours, it darkens the heart. It hardens the heart, as the prophets would say. And I think there is need here for repentance, not just of a religious sort, but I think of a social and a patriotic sort. Well, and the other thing that I want to leverage here, since we're talking about narratives in the Bible, is the story of the loaves and fishes. We sometimes, when we hear this kind of rhetoric, particularly from more conservative legislators, we act as if the kind of common wheel that we're talking about is a very finite and very concretely structured pie. And if I take stuff from this end of the pie, that means that it's not available for the other side of the pie. Um... I just want to stress to people that our government is so large and so complex that it doesn't, it literally doesn't work that way. That we, we're not looking at a kind of finite amount of resources, but rather we are looking at the possibility of both generating new sources of revenue through taxes, and I, I don't want that to drop off the table, but also we are able to have and to float certain deficits for, as we've seen, extraordinary lengths of time without diminishing the quality of life of the general sort of American public. The, what gets lost sometimes, though, as we're continuing to look at the average quality of life are those that are on the fringes, the quality of life of those who are extraordinarily wealthy and the quality of life of those who are extraordinarily poor. It has been pointed out at, in in numerous places and also on this program that during the pandemic, when so many have suffered and died, the top 1% has increased their wealth by dozens of billions of dollars at this point. That kind of increase, while at the same time the actual lived concrete reality of those at the lowest echelons of our society have continued to be in destitute third world conditions, like that's the part of this that's not sustainable. The kind of floating deficits, that actually we've proven for 30 years that's sustainable. What's not sustainable is the, the ways in which our, our country is currently acting murderously towards the least of these among us. Well, both of you have mentioned the hyper-individualistic kind of value we have in our culture here in the West, and especially in the United States. And I think that our faith, our Christian faith, and from the scriptures, as you've noticed, can 
prove as a counter witness to that. We'll find out later this week whether this the shutdown actually happens. And this is one of those times where I hope to say we won't be discussing this again in the future. But for now, you're listening to The Francis Effect. We'll be right back. Welcome back to The Francis Effect. I'm David Dalt, and I'm here with Dan Haran and Heidi Schlumpf. Every couple of weeks, we get together to discuss a variety of topics from a perspective informed by our Catholic faith. Last week, outside the Cologne Cathedral in Germany, several Catholic priests gathered to bless same-sex couples in open defiance of and protest against the local archbishop, who had previously criticized another priest in March for hosting what he called a, quote, blessing for lovers, unquote, that included same-sex couples. The Archdiocese of Cologne later reprimanded the priest and released a statement saying that the Vatican does not permit blessings of same-sex couples. According to reports, hundreds of people showed up outside the cathedral for the event on September 20th, and about 30 couples received a blessing. This is the latest instance of clergy and laity in the German Catholic Church demonstrating frustration with some church leaders, especially Cardinal Rainer Maria Velke of the Archdiocese of Cologne. From December 2019 through March 2023, the German church engaged in what was called, quote, the synodal way, unquote, which was inspired by the concept of synodality and sought to engage church leaders and members of the faithful in frank conversations about theology, church practices and structures, and contemporary issues, including gender, sexuality, and responses to sexual abuse in the church. The process has been criticized by some Vatican leaders and many vocal right-wing Catholics for what is perceived to be a dangerous departure from church teaching and practice. While this blessing ceremony in Cologne is not directly related to the German synodal way, the blessings of same-sex couples was one of the proposals to surface in the process. There are a number of issues that this event and the discussions surrounding it raise about synodality, human dignity and value, LGBTQ plus Catholics, and more. Dan, what do you think about all of this? <laughs> I have a lot of thoughts about this. And in the spirit of a kind of September festivist, I'm going to air my grievances. Now, in all seriousness, I think it's a very interesting situation and one in which as you said, David, there are a lot of kind of factors that are coming together, particularly around, I would center on the dignity and value of human persons. I think that's the starting point. And I think that's exactly the reason why some of these members of the clergy in the Catholic Church in Germany organized and celebrated these blessings was a response to what they were perceiving as a dehumanization and a kind of minimizing of the dignity and value of LGBTQ folks in particular. And, and one thing I've been thinking a lot about, I'm not the first to mention this or to think about this, is what exactly we mean when we talk about a blessing of a person and a blessing of a couple. I think there's this conflation out of fear of perception on the part of certain Vatican officials, and, and as you mentioned, especially right-wing Catholics, that blessing a couple is tantamount to a sacramental marriage, which is just simply not the case. It's not the case theologically. It's not the case juridically. It's not the case in practice. It's not the case in optics either. And so 
what the, the fact that the Vatican still holds this policy, and that is the clarification that came out, that um, you can't, quote unquote, bless same-sex couples or same-sex unions or same-sex civil marriages, I continue to find deeply offensive. In fact, in preparation for this conversation, I went back to my Catholic book of prayers, which is this kind of beefy book of blessings that you can, that that priests and deacons and lay folks can use at different occasions, right? So there are the kind of typical blessings in there, blessings of like before a meal or the blessing of somebody setting out on a journey, you know, that kind of thing. But there's a whole section, part two, there's a category, a, a, a unit of collected blessings that are official blessings of the Catholic Church that fall under the title, quote, blessings related to buildings and to the various forms of human activity, end quote. Here are a few examples. Order for the blessing of a new building site, blessing of a new home, blessing of a new library, blessing of a new parish hall or catechetical center, blessing of an office, shop, or factory, blessings of centers of social communication. Oh, it gets better, too. Blessing of a gymnasium or a field for athletics, blessing of the various means of transportation. This one's my favorite. Order for the blessing of boats and fishing gear. You have, this is for you, David, blessing of technical installations or equipment. And then you have more general things, including the order of blessing of tools or other equipment for work. And then it moves on to things like this, the blessing of animals, the blessing of fields and flocks, the blessing of seeds at planting time, and so forth. Why am I going through this litany? It's to show that the Catholic Church has approved orders of blessing for inanimate objects, for tools, for spaces of, of and places that are not traditionally considered quote-unquote sacred. This isn't just a blessing of a new altar or a blessing of a new doorway at a church or something like this. This is the blessing of a factory. It's the blessing of a car. It's the blessing of a boat, which I have no problem with. What I have a problem with is this assumption that if two people who are in love in an ex exclusive relationship um, and happen to be of the same sex, that they as human beings are withheld from receiving a blessing, that to me is deeply offensive. So while you were going through that litany, Dan, I'm reminded, as you mentioned earlier in the segment, that in a week or so, we'll be coming to a day when most parishes bless animals and pets on the Feast of St. Francis. And so you can see why LGBTQ plus folks feel dehumanized when we have blessings for boats and seeds and pets, but we can't bless them if they're in a partnership. And so I agree with you that this is part of what causes all this reaction from right-wing Catholics. But I think, as David pointed out, the connection to the synodal way in Germany is important too, especially as we move towards the synod meeting in Rome in October. They are separate events, right? And the Pope and Vatican officials have many times said that the synodal way that happened in Germany is not the same. It went too far. And there's a lot of pushback against that. But it is similar in that it's part of the church trying to listen to the people and to what's coming from the people. This past week, we had a Swiss bishop also speak out in favor of ending mandatory celibacy and in favor of women's ordination. And to think back of 10 years ago, you weren't allowed to even say such a thing or you were automatically excommunicated. The negativity I got online, especially on an ex formerly known as Twitter, to the recent piece I did about women and their hopes and dreams for ordination as a conversation at the synod, ordination to the diaconate or to priesthood. It was insane, the pushback. So I think that 
part of the reason there's so much negativity around this is because there are openings where people are bringing this up. They're talking about it in Germany. There are blessings happening. There are bishops speaking out in favor of the ordination of women. Well, one of the things that I want to stress to listeners is sometimes you'll hear the rhetoric that what is happening in Germany is something like an aberration or it's beyond the pale. We are a global church of more than a billion people, which means that there is extraordinary variety within our church. And so when we are seeing certain churches or certain national conferences of the of Catholics being more conservative and other national conferences being more progressive— it's not an example of the more conservative, that's always the locus of the true church, and then whatever's beyond that border is somehow an aberrant church. No, this entire thing is the church, and part of synodality is actually sitting down and listening to one another and recognizing that the Holy Spirit is moving in different ways, in different locations, and at different timetables for different layers of the church. As we begin to talk about through the synodal process, things like census fidelium and census fide, which are both subjects that we've talked about before here on the Francis Effect, what we're seeing is a real outpouring of the Spirit, and the Holy Spirit is not always going to do the things that you expect. The Holy Spirit is not always going to be in lockstep with the most conservative interpretation of the Catholic faith. And when we are open to that, and that doesn't mean that we necessarily are are expecting the Spirit to bring a progressive agenda across the board, but when we're open to the Spirit in its possibility of renewing and bringing things that are new, I think that is what Pope Francis is asking us to do as we move into the month of October and into the Synod on Synodality. Well, and this idea of the Spirit coming in and renewing is is at the heart of sacred scripture, right? It's it's what we see in, in the Psalms, Lord, send us your Spirit, renew the face of the earth. We see this um, in all the ecumenical councils, all 20 of them in, in the church's history. We see this as well in uh, St. John Henry Newman, among others, in their, in their theological frameworks around the development of doctrine, right? That these things are necessary. And I think one of the greatest scandals, Heidi, you alluded to basically the gag order that John Paul II in the 90s deployed around the question of women's admission to holy orders. The, the, the thing there was not a theological argument. It was an apodictic claim. He just decided and said that, A, we don't have the authority to do anything about this without, I would say, sufficient ecclesiological investigation. And then second, he said, nobody, to your point, nobody can talk about this. Stop talking about this. It's a closed, it's a closed book. It's a closed deal. What's, what's problematic about that is that is not how, David, to your point, the spirit works in the church. And it's not acknowledging the important role of theology in the church, right? Theologians and ecclesial leaders need to be in communion, in conversation, and by essentially barring theologians from doing the work of theological reflection around some of these themes, including the ressourcement of going back to the sources, which is what we see with, for instance, the open question right now around the reinstitution of the of women to the ordination of the, to the diaconate. This is not... It's a, there are clear historical roots for that. And then there are questions around theological reflection around presbyteral ordination. I think that's the fear. Let's just name it. That's the fear, is that if women are allowed to be ordained deacons, then what next? It's a quote-unquote slippery slope. Uh, bringing it back to LGBTQ plus people, 
That's the exact same thing here. If we bless same-sex unions in a civil marriage or a civil union of some kind, what's next? We're going to have to admit gay and lesbian couples to sacramental marriage? And my response to that as an actual theologian is to say, well, let the theologians do the work. Let's look at this. What is a sacramental marriage? What is the history of this? And I think a lot of people, including straight married people, would be surprised to learn that the church came pretty late to having a formal role in marriage and its declaration as a sacrament as such, right? That's not to undermine the validity of marriages before the Middle Ages, but there were practical reasons, right? You look into this or go way back to an earlier season where David and I went through each of the sacraments and we had a special segment on that. So you can check that out and you can hear more about that. But I bring that up because just naming very bluntly the fear of these antagonists, the fear of, of people who want to maintain that JP2-like silencing of any kind of inquiry, like that I think does a disservice as well when we talk about human dignity and value. It does a disservice to God's co-creative gifts that God has given us reason and experience and the ability in dialogue, walking together, that's what synodal means in this case, to think through this. And it's very hard for me who sees everything in the New Testament redounding back to God is love and what we're called to do is love one another, to take such an absolute stand on this without sufficient investigation. Well, and speaking of theologians, in the last week, the retired theologian Elizabeth Johnson has published an excellent piece on the reinterpretation of doctrine and the ability of bringing the interpretive mechanisms that we have towards the Bible to the development of doctrine in the Church. We'll link to that in the show notes, but it's an excellent piece that we can—I uh, th- I would just commend it to our listeners, because it's, it's argued so well, and it actually goes back to some suggestions made by Newman towards how we think about doctrine here. I'm so glad you mentioned that, David, and as her biographer, I'm, I'm partial to Elizabeth Johnson to begin with, but you're right, that was an excellent and timely piece right before the Synod. I agree with the need or the reality of diverse voices in the church, and certain geographical areas might be more progressive than others, but I think it's worth noting that people who have read all of the regional reports have noted that the issue of women's leadership and issues of LGBTQ uh, inclusion in the church came up across the world. And so this is not just a Western issue that only upper middle class white women in the United States care about. And so it needs to be talked about at the Synod and in our church. And I think there's also some, uh, it's fair to differentiate between issues that could be up for conversation You could go this way or that way on certain issues. But when you're talking about foundational issues about whether people are full humans in the church or not, that's of a different caliber. So to say that a woman can't image Christ, to say that an LGBTQ person can't receive a blessing, it's hard to have fruitful conversation if one's full humanity is not accepted. And I see some commentators, most of them men, (laughs) saying that we need to set aside these identity issues for the synod to be really fully real. And I just think that true conversation, true dialogue means it requires an acceptance of a person's full humanity first. (laughs) And so these issues of justice can't be ignored at the synod. Well, 
listeners, as we move forward from this particular episode, we are entering into the season of the synodal process. And as Pope Francis has asked of all of us, we will be in prayer about that, and we invite you to be in prayer with us about that. We don't know what this process will bring, but one thing that we do know is that if all that happens is simply the month of October and the synodal meeting and nothing else comes of it, then then we are looking at a process that has largely failed. But if this actually opens up a season of real dialogue and, more importantly, real listening one to another and listening to the Holy Spirit, then we can think about this as an ongoing renewal of the Church. And that is certainly what we pray for and continue to pray for here. So we're going to leave this issue for now. I'm sure that we'll come back to it in the episodes to come. You're listening to The Francis Effect. In just a few moments, we'll be back with Heidi's interview with Brian Flanagan. Welcome back to The Francis Effect. I'm Heidi Schlumpf, and I'm here today with David Dalt working behind the scenes for our new interview segment of The Francis Effect. Today's guest is Brian Flanagan. Brian is a theologian and senior fellow at New Ways Ministry, where he's helping to connect scholars with New Ways' work for equity, inclusion, and justice for LGBTQ plus people in the church. He formerly was Associate Professor of Theology at Marymount University in Arlington, Virginia, and just completed a term as President of the College Theology Society. His bachelor's degree is from the Catholic University of America, and his master's and doctoral degrees are from Boston College. He's the author of the book, Stumbling in Holiness, Sin and Sanctity in the Church. Brian, welcome to The Francis Effect. It's great to be here. I'm a fan, and now I get to be on. (laughs) Great. Well, we're so glad to have you. Now, I know you've been writing about and giving talks about synodality for the past couple of years, and we're about to come uh, upon the October meeting in Rome that is the culmination, or at least the beginning of the culmination with these two years of meetings for the Synod on Synodality. So after two years of preparation and consultation, what are you thinking about this process? And what are some of your hopes of what might come out of the October meeting specifically? It's a great question. I have been thinking about this for a while and trying to finish some projects on this for a while. I think the exciting thing is we don't quite know what's going to happen. This is a major church-wide experiment. And so I'm really hopeful about the fact that these conversations are happening. I'm really hopeful the ways this could work for beginning to address some of the synod's questions about who we are as church, how do we increase communion and participation and better serve our mission as church. I think I have it's another hope that it doesn't all blow up. I think there's a lot of people coming from lots of different places with lots of different views of the spirit. And so I, I think that's for me the the hopeful thing, but also the real hope always involves a little bit of danger. And a little bit of danger is how are all of these delegates going to get along? How is what they work on going to be received back in our local churches? And I think even Pope Francis is probably simultaneously really excited that this is finally happening. But I can't help but imagine he's probably a little nervous on the edges of how big, how much work, 
how much time, how much money has gone into making this possible. I think yeah, that, that's a good description, both the pos- of some of the positive and potentially negative emotions around this whole event. Now, you mentioned before we got on the air here that you personally are not traveling to Rome for the Synod, but some representatives from New Ways Ministry are. Could you talk a little bit about how you think LGBTQ plus Catholics have been feeling throughout this process? Do they feel included? What are they hoping for specifically that might come out of this synodal process? Yeah, so they they first say that so members of our staff will be over there reporting from there we're going to be having a series of articles on our blog and even a live event halfway through the synod to talk about lgbtq plus issues at the synod for me the most important thing that's happened is the fact that they're talking about lgbtq plus issues at the synod and even using that language so they're using the language that members of the lgbtq community prefer and used to name themselves. And that's not something that's happened before at this level of church leadership. And the other thing I think is really interesting is that this is not just from the quote-unquote usual suspects. This is not an initiative only coming out of certain parts of the U.S. Catholic Church or certain parts of the European Church. I went back and looked at all the continental documents that gathered together everything that Catholics around the world have been saying as part of this process. And five out of the six of them all mention LGBTQ plus persons. And of those five, one's a little more questioning, but most of them are asking from the grassroots level, how do we welcome LGBTQ Catholics? Now, what's going to be interesting is we're not all going to agree on what that welcome should look like. I don't. Ex- we don't expect, I think, the the synod to come up with any major new changes or descriptions as to exactly what that welcome should look like. But the very fact that the conversation is happening uh, is a sea change from 20, 10, 30 years ago. I know that some church commentators have been warning that if people are only looking at their special interest their special interest issue as they go into the synod. Sometimes this is talked about around the issue of women's issues or women's ordination, that they're doing synodality wrong, that you need to not just, you have to be listening to different perspectives and not just caring about your particular issue. So now with your work with an organization that is focused on a a special interest issue of the rights and justice for LGBTQ plus folks, what do you think about that argument about synodality or about how people can approach these issues? I'm going to give a very theologian answer of, of both. And on one level, those critics are exactly right that this is not a synod about LGBTQ issues or about women's ordination. If this is a synod primarily about who is the church and how do we better share the gospel? How do we better go out and mission to the world? How do we better be a sign and a sacrament of the communion that we have with God and neighbor? That's the big question. Those are literally the three big questions that the synodal assemblies are going to return to. Now, LGBTQ issues fit in that because so many of our experiences as LGBTQ Catholics, but also many Catholics for a lot of reasons, is that what they don't feel is a sense of welcome. What they don't feel is a sense that they're, the church is living up to its mission. So I think if you're looking for the easy headline, this is not a, an insult for you or for the other members of the media, but the easier headline is church changes teaching on homosexuality or church refuses to change teaching on homosexuality. The more accurate headline is 
church has conversation about the complexity of sexuality and gender in a worldwide church with people coming from different continents and languages about the difficulties and the joys of their different experiences. Well, as long as you have your theologian hat on, maybe I'll move to the question that talks a little bit about an area of research that you've written about, and I know you're continuing to do research in this area, the connection between um, synodality and spirituality and even synodality as a liturgical act. Can you talk a little bit about that? I could talk far too long about that, but the, the short answer, you get a little clue in this by the fact that we don't talk about just holding a synod or a council or having a synod or a council. The language we traditionally use is that we're celebrating a synod or a council, which gives you a clue as to its identity and also its origins that that the earliest forms of shared discernment come out of liturgical, even Eucharistic contexts, that, that it's not a the way I often describe it, it's not a meeting that happens to have some prayer at the beginning and the end. It's a meeting as a form of prayer. It's dialogue, listening, speaking as a form of worship and as a potential sacramental instantiation of the communion of people with God, the communion of the churches with God and with each other, uh, our communion with the Pope. So I, I think if we think of the Synod as a prayer, it's a a kind of it's an act of faith in the holy spirit that the holy spirit will guide the church it's an act of hope for where we go in the future it's fundamentally an act of love it's an act of showing up and staying at the whether it's the eucharistic table or the discussion table with people that you might disagree with with people who are bringing different and sometimes opposite judgments and experiences into conversation with your judgments and experiences so the one of the lines that Pope Francis has used is that if that without prayer there is no synod, that if we see this not as a winner takes all parliamentary assembly where we're going to vote and see if we can get a fifty one forty nine vote on something, if we see it instead as a, a a spiritual gathering, an act of faith in God's continuing guidance of the Church of Christ through the Holy Spirit, that's I think the way to view this whole thing. Well, that kind of goes back to the question I had about some of the commentators saying that's exactly what the synod needs to be. And can the synod really be that if people are very tied into their sort of individual issues? But I guess I I would be remiss if I didn't quote some people on the other side who would say it's very hard to participate in a conversation about the future if you're feeling like the organization doesn't recognize your your full humanity and for women who feel called to leadership or some LGBTQ folks and other folks in the church, they're struggling even just to get in the door, before, never mind have a prayerful, completely two sides listening to one another kind of experience. So can yeah. you understand that side as well, right? And entirely can and can share it in some of my own experience too. Sometimes, I mean, if you pray with the Psalms, sometimes the Psalms are angry. Sometimes prayer is a form of of calling out injustice. So I don't mean prayer in a more passive sense of sitting and waiting. Uh, and I think that this there the we see different models, even the consultations that led up to this first of two general assemblies. New Ways Ministry organized large online Zoom consultations with LGBTQ folks. Other organizations, my own parish, did things like this. I think we saw possibilities that in future synods and in future synodal life at the local level, we see lots of ways 
that some places reached out to Catholics who already felt marginalized or dehumanized. But we also have from that now, we have some good test cases, some good models for how do we do that, not just for this, but how do we do this on a regular basis uh, in our dioceses, in our institutions like universities, and how do we do this in our parishes? Yeah, so of course, people who are not going to Rome or who are not delegates at at the Senate, even though there's a good, I forget the number, 363, I think, uh, voting delegates, um, and as we've noted, which includes lay people for the first time, um, how can they participate? You mentioned the listening sessions that went on in the the, the first years of the synod process before we got to this meeting. But what what are you recommending for members or, or supporters of New Ways or for other Catholics? How can they participate in this as a prayerful uh, liturgical experience? The first, you, you stole my first answer, right? I, I'm, I'm very serious when I say the first thing people need to do is pray along with the synod. There's going to be an ecumenical prayer service with participants like his All Holiness, the Patriarch of Constantinople and the Archbishop of Canterbury, live streamed on September 30th. The prayer at the beginning of each general session is going to be live streamed. There is an offer for special intercessions and even a special blessing for the end of the Mass for October 1st that's been sent throughout the world. So ask your pastor if he's going to use it. But I think praying and following along with a sense of how can our prayer help help these women and men hear the voice of the Spirit in each other? in their own experiences, in their own judgments. The second big thing I think Catholics can do is that to recognize that this is only the first of two general assemblies of this particular synodal process. So let me start first with that. the first part. This is not the end of the Synod on Synodality. We are going to be getting a document or at least results. I think we're not quite sure what's going to happen yet, but there'll be results from this first meeting in October and the plan to return to the local level and share those results in order to prepare for next fall's second General Assembly uh, is a chance for you, for all of us, to read them like we did, or maybe not like I did, I'm a little too young, but like some people did as the Vatican Council documents were being released, to study them together in our schools, study them together in our parishes, write in response to where you feel this matches your experience of the faith and your theology of the faith, and also to write where you feel like they've missed something. We have the benefit now of knowing who's going to be in the room this year and who's going to be in the room next year, most likely. So thinking about this as part one of a process that hopefully will continue to have input on at the local level before next October. But the second thing too, sorry, sorry, the second thing there is this is only the first worldwide universal synod on synodality where the pope has taken some of the lessons from the synods on the family and the synods on amazonia and tried to have a much larger event but if this is the last major synodal experience then the pope will have failed if this is the last time we have a universal synod then the Pope will have not have moved the needle on how the church um, does its daily business. If this, is the, if this is the only time it happens, if it's not happening in our parishes, if it's not happening with similar places for consultation, for dialogue, for speaking and for listening in our schools, in our parishes, at the local level, then we're not going to be really living out the pathway that the Pope says that the church is called to follow in the 21st century. 
So you mentioned the importance of following along, and of course, I'd be remiss if I didn't remind people that NCR is going to have a number of folks, including me. I'll be traveling towards the end of the Senate to go to Rome, but I highly recommend the New Ways blog as well. It's daily and really substantive and captures so much of the news about LGBTQ issues in the church and worldwide, so I highly recommend that as well. And I'm going to be curating some theologians responding on a weekly basis, as well as, as I said, we'll have sometime mid-October, our, our members of our group who will be on the ground in Rome will have a Q&A to talk about where we are so far in the Synod. And we're hoping to have another session with Synod participants after the Synod is over in November. Yes, and you rightly point to the importance of what happens after the Synod as being very important, too. So just uh, one final question, maybe. What are some of the other issues that are on your radar or maybe on the radar of New Ways Ministry these days? You mentioned earlier the issues around transgender identity issues. And this past couple months ago, we had the release from the Committee on Doctrine from the U.S. bishops about prohibiting Catholic health care institutions from providing gender-affirming care. So what kinds of things are you hearing about or on your radar from LGBTQ Catholics? And one of those is precisely the place and the status of our transgender siblings and how is the church responding to them. And before we even get to responding, in some ways, I think that the guidelines are, I think we, we need to have more time of listening to the experiences of our transgender siblings in Christ. And frankly, I think New Ways Ministry is concerned about the way in which this has become aligned with some forms of conservative politics, has also been concerned with how the church leaders are making decisions without necessarily having all of the information about how people experience their own identity, their own gender identity. Another thing we're, we're continuing to be concerned about is firings of LGBTQ folks in Catholic institutions, especially places like high schools, but also places like parishes and medical institutions, that that kind of discrimination that many of us would not support in areas of our, our civic life, whether it was our, a public school or an institution, are happening still on a regular basis in at, at the local level in Catholic institutions. So the third thing I think that's a, a big thing that we are thinking about uh, and worrying about is about criminalization of LGBTQ folks in other parts of the world. And how do Catholics and especially LGBTQ folks, but also all of their allies, continue to uphold church teaching on the dignity of each human person and, and their religious and civil freedoms uh, in places where uh, the government is actually recriminalizing or criminalizing same-sex sexual relations, or people who identify as LGBTQ. So there's a lot to work on. New Ways always needs more help. So the, the website is newwaysministry.org if that's something that, that you're interested in helping with our work on all of that. Well, thank you again, Brian. And you heard it, listeners, he's asking us to pray for the people at the Synod, to pray with the Synod. And, and we hope to maybe hear from you a little bit after the Synod and see how things have gone, if not this year, next year. Again, thanks for listening to The Francis Effect. Hello, this is David again. The full version of Heidi's interview is available on our Patreon site, patreon.com slash FrancisFXPod. For Heidi and Father Dan, I'm David Dalt. We'll be back in a couple weeks with the next episode of the Francis Effect podcast. Thank you so much for listening. The 
Francis Effect is produced by Sandberg Media LLC and is recorded remotely in Chicago, Illinois and South Bend, Indiana. It's edited by me at the William Adams Studios in Hyde Park on Chicago's beautiful South Side. The opinions of this program are our own and do not reflect the positions of any organizations with which we may be affiliated. We want to give a shout out to the Salt and Light Catholic Media Foundation. They are not affiliated with our program, but they did give us their kind permission to use the name The Francis Effect, and we appreciate it very much. Please check out their good work at slmedia.org. This show is made possible in part by our Patreon supporters, and if you'd like to join them, please go to patreon.com slash francisfxpod. We appreciate it very much. Please follow us on Twitter and Facebook. Both of those are at francisfxpod, and our website is also francisfxpod.com. Please tell your friends about the show, and if you're here for the first time, we have seasons and seasons of episodes that you can go back to and listen to for your heart's content. We're so glad that you're here. Heidi and Father Daniel and I will be back in about two weeks. We're looking forward to being with you then. Thank you again for listening.